Hey guys, welcome back to the Jen Hatmaker Book Club podcast. And if you're listening to this on our regular For the Love podcast feed, welcome. This is a little sneak peek into all the incredible fun that we have behind the scenes at the Jen Hatmaker Book Club, which we would love to have you. We've got a seat saved for you. We have plenty of room. Greatest community on earth. You can find out more at jenhatmakerbookclub.com. All right. I am, as always, excited to bring you another incredible author chat. This month, we are talking with Laura Zygman. And of course, Laura wrote our book this month, Separation Anxiety. I have seen all of you buzzing in the Facebook group and know that you all feel the same way. But before we get into it, let me tell you a little bit about Laura. Um, so Laura shot into the literary community with her best-selling book, Animal Husbandry. Um, and in a move that's not too bad for your first book, it was made into a movie called Someone Like You. And it starred Hugh Jackman and Ashley Judd. Boring, no big deal. Um, she's also the author of Dating Big Bird, Her, and Piece of Work. And then with all her free time, she has contributed to the New York Times, the Washington Post, Huff Post. Um, and so there's so many interesting and interesting parts of this conversation. You're going to love it, you guys. Um, chief of which is that, for me, Laura took a big gap between this book and, and her last book. And so you will not believe how many elements of separation anxiety are born out of her real life. Now, always with a, a fiction zhuzh to it, but so many pieces of this kind of come from Laura's experience, um, from some of her memories. I, they just kept coming. She just kept saying, I kept saying, where did this crazy idea come? She's like, well, it's real because in my real life, um, like case in point, uh, puppet people, <laughs> What in the world? Um, I ask her a bunch of your questions. Um, I tell her our responses um, across the board and she's utterly delightful. You're going to love meeting her face to face. So I'm so happy to share this conversation with the extraordinary author, Laura Zygmunt. Yay. I'm so happy to meet you. I am such a fan of you, of your work, of your book. It was so fun to put your book into our book club. Laura, I would just want to jump in with you because my community is so excited to hear from you. These, these things that you come up with out of your brain. I mean, these quirky people and these un just, we, we've never seen any of our characters make some of these choices. And so it's so, um, we, we can't predict what's coming next. We don't know what's going to happen. Um, it's, it's wonderful. Like I'm, I'm, I think it must be a wonderful, weird party in your head. It is. Um, <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's a great yeah. way to put it. Um, I want to ask you this first, just as we kind of lead into, um, the book, of course, writing for you, I, I would love to just hear you talk a bit about it as was this always and forever your clear path. Is, is this a surprising career? Was this was everybody like, this is obviously what you are going to do with your life? You know, there are people who go through life and they're good at like 10 different things. Yeah. They're good at one thing. And I think a lot of writers are that way. They're only good at one thing. And so by your career becomes process of elimination of what you can't do. Like, I think at one point I was interested in medicine, couldn't do the math. So, you know, the world just got smaller and smaller. Yeah. And of course I loved writing. I started writing really in junior high school and high school 
and college, but I grew up in a family that like a lot of people, you know, we didn't come from money. And so it was like, I had worked since I was 14, I was waitressing and, you know, always had a job. And so I wasn't sort of sent forth into the world saying, oh, go be a writer. I was like, no, my parents were like, you know, get a job with medical benefits and write in your spare time. And that seemed completely reasonable to me. Hmm. And it also, I didn't have the confidence um, at that age, you're 22 or 23 to think like, oh, I'm a, I'm a writer, no. So I went into book publishing, I moved to New York, um, unexpectedly, I never really wanted to move to New York, but everyone I knew was going. And so I went along. So I um, ended up at Random House uh, for 10 years and I was a book publicist. So that meant I worked on other people's books and I didn't really tell anyone I was a writer. You know, I mean, authors that I worked with because I was very, you know, I was very much into the doing a good job for them. Sure. And um, in my spare time, I wrote, I was working on animal husbandry and it took about uh, over five years to write it. And it was only when I left New York and moved down to Washington that I was able to have the time because I had a more normal job. I had a yeah. job for the Smithsonian. I was home at 520 every night. Wow. So all that time that you were writing that you didn't show it to a single person. I mean, you're literally surrounded by publishers and the yeah. whole industry. You kept that under wraps. Well, that's really funny. It's funny that you asked that. I did show it. One of my authors, I did a lot of traveling with uh, authors, mm -hmm. a lot of celebrity authors and a lot of like writer authors. And one of my authors at the time was Brett Easton Ellis and who, you know, less than zero among other things. And, um, he had this very bad boy reputation, but he was a really nice guy. And we were, and we ended up taking the train up and down the East coast, you know, from New York to DC and Philly okay. and that kind of thing. So at one point he said, you know, I know you, I hear from friends of mine that you write, you know, what can I do? And I, I said, well, I just finished it. He said, give it to me. I'll, I'll show it to my agent. So we lived about a block away from each other. And he said, drop it off. So I dropped it off his doorman daily, maybe two days. He read it really quickly, came right back to my dorm and I opened the envelope expecting, you know, and it, it was, he uses a big black Sharpie and he wrote all over it. He wrote all over it in big black Sharpie. This sucks. No, he didn't. I hate this. No. Boring. And then he occasionally would say, love this, you know, like brilliant. But most of it was just nothing. He would say, these people are talking. They're not saying anything. Oh and, God. and I put it away for about two years and wow. it took that long and I took it out. And when wow. I took it out, I realized, you know, he was right. He was right. Ah. So I ended up going through a lot of it. And I started when I was in Washington, I started, oh I just removed everything that he said was bad because he was right. And I started, I sort of started again. Um, but I've heard that story. There's somebody else who had a similar experience with him. So you have to be really careful who you show your stuff to. Well, you hadn't developed your thick skin yet. You, you no. hadn't really taken your licks yet. Of course, at this point in your career, you're immune. I mean, you're almost immune. Are you ever immune? No, but we're better. We're better. We're right? better. We're better. I mean, it won't send us to bed for yeah. six days yeah. anymore. Like it used to criticism used to be so hard, even still. Um, how many, how many books have you written? I've ghostwritten a few and I've, um, so the novels I've, I've, this was my fifth novel. So there was a 14 year gap between my last one and this oh. one, which is a really long time. May I ask about the gap? Yeah. I mean, no one really cares. It's not like people were like, Hey, where are you? It's only me. I cared that. Uh -huh. went by. But I mean, the 14 years in those 14 years, you know, social media, you know, my last novel was published in 2006. We hadn't had an African-American president. We didn't have social media yeah. yet. Facebook, nothing. So it really was very different. Um, but, you know, what happened was my uh, fourth novel was published in 2006. 
Uh And right after that, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, It was very early, like a whole series of things in my life started to happen. My parents got sick, a lot of stuff happened. And I ended up just completely having no, I was, I was blocked and, and kind of just Mm. overwhelmed by life. And so I ended up a few years later realizing I still had to earn a living, even though I wasn't, I just didn't feel creative enough to generate, you know, as you know, you have to generate your own ideas. Um, and so I ended up sort of by accident pivoting into ghostwriting, which was a great relief because oh. it's a difficult job, but it's like a, use your same skill set that you use for writing and you um, use it to tell someone else's story. And when you are blocked, um, that's a lot easier to tell someone else's story. Totally. Yeah. And it's a really fascinating, you know, process. I've worked with a bunch of different people and um, it, the most difficult part, really, we always say that the easy... Oh, the ghostwriters I know, we have a secret group on Facebook. Um, it's always like the writing is the easy part. It's the other stuff. It's like, it's a lot of psychology. It's a lot of figuring out how to get someone to trust you to tell you their stuff. The other hard part is getting them to schedule you. So that's very hard. They're very, very busy. Fast. I'm so fascinated yeah. with this. Are, are, are the majority of your ghostwriting projects, are they fiction? Are they more like memoir? Are you sort of getting into somebody's life and telling them? Oh yeah, that's hard. Yeah. So I worked with Wendy Davis in Texas. Yeah. Oh, Um, sure. And she was really, really great. And I worked with Eddie Azard, actor, comedian. And I recently worked with um, somebody else, an actress. And so. um, Well, you're all over the place. (laughs) So mostly memoir. That must be fascinating. And I can also imagine having dive so deeply into somebody else's brain, into somebody else's experience, really even into somebody else's voice that I can see how that could jog you out of your own block. Yeah. I want to talk to you about the book that you made up out of your brain um, (laughs) that we have now just enjoyed so much in our book club. Um, I I don't even know where to start. Let's start here. Um, One of the most interesting plot points in your novel that, I mean, I, I'm trying to compare it to something I ever experienced in another book was the discovery of the sling. And I, I'm just, we just have a million questions about the, about the sling. Like how, how did that come to you? How did this idea come to you? First of all, did you see this somewhere? I mean, no. did, this, did you get triggered? Were you in a park and you saw a dog in a sling and you're like, that has to be the center point of a character's story. But and then, however, that came, tell, tell us how you came to that. And then can you talk a little bit about Judy's growing attachment to it, like right out of the gate, setting the tone kind of for the rest of the book? Sure. You know, it's funny how it comes, you know, when you write fiction, I know you write, I don't know if you write fiction, but when you write fiction, there is this magical thing that happens where stuff just appears. And that was one of those things, you know, they always tell you in any kind of writing, as you know, that you're supposed to show and not tell. It just came to me because it was um, when I was going through some of the worst times of my life, when my mother was dying and all that stuff, I had, we had recently gotten a dog and I'd never, I had not grown up with a dog. I didn't understand that whole thing about dogs and animals and people. I just didn't get it until I got it. Uh, and then um, I didn't, you know, people said, did you wear your dog in a sling? And I said, no, but I felt like I did because I always had her with mm-hmm. me. And when mm-hmm. I would come home from a long day with my mother, she had pancreatic cancer, I would yeah. come home and, and I would almost sort of attach myself to the dog yeah. and, and get this incredible comfort. It was like a therapy animal that I didn't really take on a leash, yeah. with me, you know, to, into yeah. places. But, and so when you ask, that's part of the kind of magical process of writing. I don't yeah. usually talk about writing as a magical process because it's just very, usually very 
not like that for me, but totally. that's one of those things where it just came to me. I, it's mm. funny because I Google everything. I'm always yeah. Googling. I'm always investigating. I'm, you know, always looking into things. And for some reason, I never knew that dog slings were a thing, but dog slings are actually, they sell them at Petco now. Yep. And people like Margaret Cho, the actress, yeah. you know, people use it, but I did not know that. I didn't either. Because we looked it up because we read your book. We're like, I think this isn't a thing. And the link started coming in. It is, you guys. This is real. Yes. It is real. Now, I mean, I have seen people, people send me on Instagram a lot. Sure. They, they send me pictures of people or themselves. Um, and I think I've seen a few people, but yeah. it really was just made up. It was just made up. Because I thought, yeah. oh, wouldn't it be great if yeah. I could have carried my dog around with me yes. during those awful times? Yeah. And, yes. Yeah. We, I actually love that. And in our community, this has spurred on this massive, endless discussion around our pets. So in our in our Facebook group, it is pet after pet after pet. But we, we are like, okay, you know what? Most of us don't carry our pets in a sling, but our pets comfort us like this. Our pets know, they sense when we are scared or sad or sick and they they come in their own selves. Um, and so I'm not surprised to hear that your readers are constantly talking to you about their own pets. Um, you really hit a button there that is a shared love, honestly. Like we love our pets too. KiwiCo believes that small lessons today can mean big world-changing ideas tomorrow. So they want to kickstart curiosity and creation and innovation in kids right here, right now. With a KiwiCo subscription, your child gets a new crate full of fun science and art projects every month that will encourage them to tinker and to innovate and create. They'll discover the science behind hydraulics, for example, or build a walking robot, see how high they can make a rocket fly. Everything is shipped right to your door and there's no commitment, so you can pause or cancel anytime. Do you know what I plan to do with my baby nephews this summer? You better believe we'll be sitting down to do some KiwiCo projects, which I have at the ready for them. Especially with my nephew Calvin, he's a little older than Owen, we'll get the koala crate. And we might get a crate with ocean games, where Calvin will get to make a splash with science and math. There's like a fishing pole we can use to catch all sorts of felt sea creatures. We can practice sorting them by size. We can even make a mosaic of marine animals that'll help Calvin and Aunt Jen practice their color matching skills. It's just fun. It's all fun. There's no telling what a Kiwi Co. kid can do. Kickstart curiosity and creation and innovation in kids today and discover a brighter tomorrow. So get 30% off your first month plus free shipping on any crate line with the code for the love at KiwiCo.com. So that's 30% off your first month at kiwico.com promo code for the love every single day of our lives we are hit over and over with the message that we need more more money more friends a bigger house a fancier job title more of everything because if we have more in our lives then we will matter more or something when you think about it, the idea that you have to be more at all, it's a, just kind of this crippling idea in the first place. And it doesn't make you feel better. It doesn't make me feel better. Um, it makes my heart start beating faster. It makes my eyes roll back in my head or my shoulders come up to my ears. More is tiring. More is tiring and I'm tired. 
So I wonder what it would feel like to live with less, less stuff, less spending, less stress. I wonder how you'd feel if you made more room for the best things that life has to offer, the stuff that we really care about, joy, generosity, connection, freedom. So 10 years ago, my family started an experiment that we called seven, where we dialed it back on seven areas of our lives, like food and clothes and spending and media, stuff and waste and stress. And let me tell you, it was life-changing and it still is. Seven shifted the way that we operated in the past decade. And it's done the same for tens of thousands of readers who did this experiment right along with us. And now here's the exciting part. I'm bringing you a new updated revised edition of seven and it's now called simple and free. Ah, simple and free. Doesn't that sound nice? Isn't that what we're craving right now? I want to invite you into this story that honestly changed me forever. I've added a bunch of new thoughts and new research throughout the book about how remarkably changed we have been since this originally took place 10 years ago. And please believe me, this is not a template. It's not a rule book. It's not another something that's going to make you feel guilty. That I promise you. It's freedom. I am inviting you to explore what your life might look like when you start to shift your thinking from more, more, more to less. Because once you let go of all that stuff that we were never meant to carry around, we discover we have room for peace and freedom. I just can't wait for you to read Simple and Free. I'm so happy to share that you can get it right now, wherever you buy books. So head on over to jenhatmaker.com slash simple and free and grab your copy today. I want to talk about, because I thought this, I loved your literary use of the way you, we flash back in throughout the story. Um, I, I read that you call yourself an instinctive writer. So first of all, I want to hear you talk about that. Second of all, I'm curious, um, how did you decide like when and where to give us as your readers more details about your characters' lives. Did, did this, is this by feel? Is this plan? Are you, are you a planner? I've, I just put 10 questions in there. So you just pick one They're and you'll go. Yes. Um, you know, when I call myself an instinctive, instinctual writer, it's because I always feel, you know, I didn't get an MFA. And so I always, I dro- in fact, I went for an MFA and I dropped out after two days, but um, oh. I didn't oh. like it. Yeah. Woo. Um, so wow. I always feel like a little bit less than because I don't have that sort hmm. of yep. ex- intense education in terms of like what I'm doing. But for me, it always always really has been very instinctual. And so I always start off with the voice. I think the voice yeah. is really important or that's yeah. what I like when I'm reading. If yep. I open a book, I, if I am drawn in by that first page, the first line, yeah. the first paragraph, and that's usually has a lot to do with the voice. Who's telling yeah. the story? You may not believe the person. You may like, Ooh, who is this? So I always really focus on that at the beginning. And then um, to be honest, it is really, you have a sense of feel. You have to sort of start with, you know, the story and then you, you do just kind of go back and forth. And then the other, you know, the secret sauce is your editor. There's never a lack of people telling you, add something here, you need background here. And so really you do as much as you can and you're always, um, you're always missing something. And so when you go through the, if you have a good editor, which I did, 
yeah. they'll just say, we need more here, yep. we want more here. And so that just guides you. So if you're, you know, it's helpful. Absolutely. Um, I always have to remember that my editors are here um, and it's not that they don't, they're not hateful. They're not absolutely terrible people. This is immediately what I think about them when I get my first draft back immediately. And then absolutely. I, I, I walk for a mile. I just like, I'm going to go out. I'm going to look at trees. I'm going to tell myself that I am, I am loved. I am a good person. <laughs> the editor's almost always right. It so just true. takes me a day. It almost takes me a day to come back around and be like, okay, fine. I'll, we need some more background color. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Um, yeah. I will not send you hate mail <laughs> um, or at least I'll try. I have sent some hate mail and then had to apologize. But um, so I'm, how did, what's your writing process like in terms of drafts? How are, are do you, do you dial it in pretty tight on draft one or are you, do you have to do a lot of rewriting? What is, Oh, what is so, much so much rewriting. So much rewriting. When I, you know, when I started this book, um, I had, as you know, I hadn't written for quite a while. I had been yeah. ghostwriting, but I had not written my own stuff. And then I really, I, I started to get friendly with a bunch of writers here in Cambridge, mm. um, which is right in Harvard Square. Yeah. And because my job had been as a publicist for 10 years, I don't like writers as a rule. I don't oh. want to be friends with them because I worked for them. They're very hilarious. So That's I really fair. stayed away with them, but I actually live across from Sue Miller, who wrote Monogamy this year, and the uh -huh. Good Mother. Oh, yeah. Alice Hoffman is a good friend of mine. She's in the neighborhood. Yeah. So I started to hang out with writers. I was like, oh, they're not so bad. And they really <laughs> were very, um, uh, they tried oh. to convince me to try again. And so I um, ended up, I needed some office space, but I, I couldn't afford it. So I ended up um, going on Craigslist and finding out that you could rent shrinks offices by the hour. So yeah. I got a shrinks office in Harvard Square and I rented it for like an, uh, like a day, a, a day a week, Monday. Okay. And I would sit there. And so I started that way. I sort of started small mm. and um, I would get about 50 pages and I'd show my husband and my husband had been a writer, written for the New Yorker a oh, long time wow. ago. And so he was very, wow. he was like a very good reader, very tough. So oh, I would yeah. show it to him and I'd be like, oh, look, here, here's my first 50 pages. And you'd go, no, 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 to start again. So I'd take yes. them back and I, would, and finally I got it. Like I would, and then I stopped showing him, but I understood what he was saying. He's always, I have to say he's always right, but it's very painful for him too. Cause who wants so to say these aren't good, but yeah. you know, the, the fact is you have to, and I'm sure it's true for yeah. you too, you just have to, um, you know, to, to feel like you can just sit down and write a perfect draft that never happens. Never. Um, and so you just have to really resign yourself that this is a process. And that, and I think Annie Lamott talks yeah. about this. You just have to do a terrible first draft. Like you That's cannot it. avoid it and you can't feel, I mean, yeah. shame is such a big thing in the book. And it's, I think it's such a big thing in the world. And we have all the shame, like, Oh my God, that's so just, you get your edits back. Like you just described. And it's like, essentially you're full of shame. Like, why didn't I, how come I didn't do this? You know? Um, and so it's just very hard to expect from yourself perfection. No, many, many drafts, many drafts. Misery, it's misery, but it's, you have to do it. Yeah. 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 Right. That's right. That's right. Right. Yes. It is many, many, many drafts and killing our darlings constantly. And 
it's just a part of the process. I like how you say that. If we go in yeah. knowing this is what it is, it's not because I'm a bad writer and it's not because my editor is a bad person. This is just the process to get it to its best space. Yeah. Um, but, you know, yeah. for people who aren't writers, it's no joke to kill 50 yes. pages you've written. 50 pages has cost you a little something. That, that yeah, it's, it's real. That's the mark of a really good writer, um, who, those who are willing to just put it, even if it's brilliantly, if it's brilliant prose or it's lyrically lovely, or it doesn't matter if it's not serving the story and we're willing to kill it. That's the stuff. I want to talk about sure. Judy. Um, did you start with Judy? Did you have Judy first um, when you were sort of parsing out your characters, when you were beginning to think about their interpersonal relationships? Um, was she the beginning point? Because I mean, she's, she is yeah. going through it in this book. And, and even where we start with her is, well, there's so much more coming for her. She's already going through it when we meet her. And so I, I, do you think that you use the timeline of Judy's grief and anxiety um, as a bit of a messaging, as a bit of a narrative? Because there's a lot to relate to there, a lot. Um, so we all found parts of her that were like, same, 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 same. I think, you know, I went into it. It had been such a long break. My past books had been about dating and, you know, yeah. the early years of marriage. And by the time I went back to writing, you know, a lot of this is, you know, I always say I write autobiographical, semi-autobiographical fiction. So I always start in, at a place that's real for me and real for people I know. Yeah. It's just how I build a story. But you know, for me, it was like, I really, really wanted to write about this part of life where um, loss just overtakes you and where you yeah. may not just be losing people like parents or friends or, mm -hmm. but you're losing uh, or have lost a piece of yourself um, in, in yeah. your marriage or in you know, pieces of your career. For me in real life, I had lost those things. I had lost my career. I had mm -hmm. this fabulous career and it was just gone. Like literally, mm -hmm. you know, just like, gone you know I had a movie made of my first book and then 15 years later nothing you know and you feel a sense of shame you feel like a sense of failure you run into people who say you know what happened to you you know where'd you go and it's really hard to explain and there is a sense of shame you know in this perceived sense of failure like and in real life we all have these periods of time I mean some of us are you know I had friends who were in their 20s and 30s who lost their parents really young and had to deal with that kind of stuff and then there's people like me who lost them like in a more normal age but whatever you know piece you're dealing with whether you have a sick kid or you have a difficult marriage or uh, some constellation of all those things and I think there's this emphasis you know one of your questions I think was about self-help but there's this sense that, you know, we're supposed to be happy, 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 happy. And, yes. you know, that there's a, a sense of shame again, if you're not, you know, you and your spouse aren't completely, you know, together all the time, or if you are dealing with mental health issues, you're still a stigma. Um, and so for Judy, you know, she's dealing with a lot. Her husband has mental health issues and anyone who's dealing with mental, whether it's your spouse or your child or yourself, we all know People don't really want to go there. You can talk about it just a little, but there's still a real stigma to it. And, um, you know, for them as a couple, it's hard for them to socialize. And so it's isolating and starts to people start to fall away. Friends start to fall away. It's awkward. Um, and it's difficult. You know, Gary's difficult. He's quirky. He's like, 
ag- he gets agitated. He doesn't like people, you know, it's, it's, and so you can't really go to a dinner party. Um, and also she just is embarrassed. Her career is going nowhere. And so there's a lot of stuff like that. And I felt very um, wedded to the fact that I wanted to present a really kind of d- difficult period of time. And, and it's one of those mm. periods that we all go through. And I, I remember I showed, I think the first hundred pages or so to um, someone you know, a long time ago and, and he's older and he goes, he's an agent, but he goes, oh, I love it. He goes, but does it get funny? You know, and, and it's true because you totally. have to, as much as you want to communicate yeah. a sense of realness, um, you have to yeah. be entertaining as well. I mean, you have to make it, give uh-huh. the reader something to, some ha- some hope, you know, for the future. Yes, exactly. Right. And especially because you made the choice um, that I found very realistic um, to give us both Judy and Gary both struggling as opposed to one spouse who's really in the weeds and the other one's kind of carrying the torch. We get two, two of them in the weeds and which is frankly normal. This is, this is normal. This is real life. Um, and so I, I felt like you gave us this important moment of levity where our shoulders relaxed and we like barked out loud laughing, um, of course, with the puppet, puppet people. (laughs) Oh, I'm so tickled when the puppet people came on the scene, I was like, what's happening? Like, what is happening? We, we just have to know. Where, where did you get this idea? It's so out of left field. Um, and they are so out of left field. They're so quirky. And I, it was just, it was absurd, which was fun at the moment. It was, we needed a little absurd and it was right on time, like right on time, even when they walked in the door in costume. So we're not even, it's, it's not even like it's who they are. Um, so can you talk about how, you discovered the puppet people in the story. How, where did this come from? And then how you decided to use them as Judy and Gary are developing and, you know, emotionally. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. You know, so my son went to Montessori school and I was working on this before I was writing this as a novel, I was writing it sort of as a screenplay. And if you, I'd never written a screenplay and I was sort of teaching myself, you know, how to do it. Um, needless to say, it didn't sell because I didn't do it very well. But um, you have to show everything in a screenplay, like a lot of visuals. Yeah. So um, sure. I remember I was working in this as a screenplay and it was very different, um, but but Judy and Gary were in it. And they had a little boy who went to Montessori school. And as I was, I remember I was working one day at the library and I got an email from the Montessori school and it said, people puppets. That was the subject yes. line. And so the people puppets were coming. So his Montessori school did this thing like, just like in the book, every oh, year for real. two weeks, they did like a little residency and, you know, Circus Smirkus came one year and like an African drumming group came in and the people puppets from Vermont came and I was like the people puppets. And it, it seemed like a perfect visual thing for a screenplay because, you know, totally. you can really see them, um, but they're completely imaginary. I mean, they did have a puppet thing, you know, a people puppet thing that they did are, are sort of like they get dressed up in these paper mache things, but they did not stay with us. But, it, but yeah. it's funny when you write fiction, um, I had them, but then I had no idea yeah. what to do with them. I was like, don't totally, who here. would? I mean, I know they're here to help them yes. with tuition and everything. And so yeah. I um, saw my, it's like a life coach that I see like once or twice a year and she's brilliant. Mm-hmm. And I went to her and I was like, listen, 
Um, and she's kind of a writer too. I said, listen, I, so I sort of tell her the whole plot. I said, totally stuck. Sure. I said, I've got everything in place. I get the people puppets. I said, no idea what they're doing there. And she goes, oh my God. She's one of those people. She goes, oh my God. Yes. I just told my husband this story last night and I didn't know why I had to tell him that. And now I realize it's because I have to tell you the story. So in brief, she grew up in Princeton, New Jersey. Her mother, yeah. her father was a stockbroker. Her mother was a couples counselor. And one Saturday okay. she told the kids, my life coach, and her brother, okay. you have to leave the house. I have an emergency session. So this couple came over and they, they came over and they said, oh my God, we have this emergency. They were splitting up, but they had someone who had been staying with them in their house up in the attic. I was a professor okay. at Princeton and this guy had been staying okay. with them and um, he wouldn't leave for months and months. The guy wouldn't leave. He'd moved in because he himself oh. was getting divorced. And so finally the, they were saying like, could you, maybe you could leave. You know, we have things we have to figure out. We're getting divorced. You know, could you leave? And he stayed and stayed. And finally that day he came downstairs with his suitcase and his typewriter because back then in the typewriter, oh, sure. and he said, I'm leaving finally. And he said, by the way, I just finished my screenplay. And the screenplay was about them, the couple who owned the house, the professor and his wife who were getting, he'd been upstairs eavesdropping. That's why he didn't want to leave. No. He was upstairs eavesdropping. And the whole time he was like, oh my God, this is a screenplay. And so it became shoot the moon with Albert Finney and what? Yeah, it, it was like that's the movie. That's bonkers. Bo, I think his name is Bo Goldman. He was living upstairs from John McPhee, who's professor at Princeton at the time, and um, he was like, oh, "This is great material. I'm I'm oh observing." And so that sort of gave me the idea of having them upstairs yes. for a more benevolent reason than using uh, yeah. using the material to show something benign um, during. The oh movie. my gosh. That's amazing. But that's how you, if you're ever stuck, you should just tell people that you're stuck and yeah. a gift will come from heaven like that. And you'll be like, oh God, yes, I have. I have. It's gift. so true. Yeah. Um, I'm already fascinated at how many real life things you have woven into this book. Just hearing you talk like, oh, that was real. That was true. People puppets are a real thing. You really went to Montessori. Right. I mean, I, I see now your own personal like thumbprint and so much it's more. So it's, it's like, it's real, but wildly different. Right. right. So yes. it's always real to a point. It's just the scaffolding. And then you hang all that other stuff on it. But uh, that's uh, real life is so fascinating and wild. It really is a good starting mm -hmm. place. Um, even for the quirkiest of stories. I, one thing, one choice that you made that I thought was clever and also relatable, especially now, I, uh, for all of us as readers, was that Judy is writing these quippy, happy, poppy, snippy little posts for a health and wellness yeah. site. And of course, we know Judy. She is deeply sad and lost and not happy and not go lucky. And what's, of course, obviously the obvious connection point is how many of us do something similar. Our social media outward facing self is so different than what's happening in our homes or whatever. Um, so I'd like to hear you talk about that choice and her work and what you were kind of hoping to communicate or that the readers would receive from that strange juxtaposition. Yeah. I mean, I think you really kind of hit on that. You know, it's funny because again, um, I worked for a friend of mine who had started an app back in 2013, back when apps were really popular and it was called Happier. And it was mm. based in Boston and it got a lot of attention. The New York Times picked it up. It was sort mm. of like a very positive 
um, Instagram or Facebook. You would um, you would post like three. It was based on neuroscience, and you would post three things a day um, that you were grateful for. And and then apparently the neuroscience says that if you are grateful and you write down three things a day, you become forty yeah. percent happier. Well, I never understood how you could quantify, okay. but regardless. Um, okay. And the and the the. The hilarious part was the first job I'd had since Random House. I hadn't been in an office. I was the old, I was mm. fifty. I was the oldest. Everyone was twenty. I could I couldn't mm. get up. This, it was in a loft. I had to like stop on the way up to breathe. <laughs> you know, I had a blackberry totally. instead of an iPhone. I was just it was just a loser, sure. and um, it was very hard to acclimate. And the really funny part was that the um, the person who started it was from uh, Russia. She had come, you know, she fled Russia with her family. She, she was like not a happy person by nature. You know, neither am I. And so it would just seem so strange. Like we were running this thing and I was very much kind of like helping her a lot with, you know, stuff. And I just was like, and, and we kept pivoting. Once it was an app, then it became this, then it became, and then it became really a website with these articles that I had to write, these very yeah. short things. And it just seemed like ridiculous i mean i was like on medication i was like i had you know i was still grieving and there i was writing these little things and you know i think it's also true when you have um like the whole breast cancer thing the whole pink the pink they call it pink washing where you're really not allowed to just say you know this this kind of sucks i have you know i have breast cancer you know or whatever um i have to be very upbeat about this and i think it just does everyone a disservice that they this pressure to feel good like you will feel good uh-huh. later and you can feel good later and you can yes. have all your gratitude and all that but you should be allowed the space to just yes. feel like you know this is I'm really upset that this is happening and I'm grateful yes. that xyz but um and those apps and those um sites and all the self-help stuff um a lot of times not all the time sometimes it's really helpful but the, sometimes it yeah. is like a lot of pressure people just feel this intense pressure this happiness pressure and it, and it's unusual. It's like, you're not going to feel happy all the time. You know, you will feel happy at different moments and you can't yes. expect this pressure. You end up feeling like a failure. You know, I'm not happy. Yes. Yes, exactly. I cannot agree more. I, that was one thing I wanted to talk to you about was kind of this self-help culture. I, I'm putting that, that's a big umbrella, that being kind of one possible thing under them. Um, but I appreciated the kind of expose, if you will, that you gave us as readers that this is superficial. It is, there are no deep waters inside a lot of this instruction on how to just be happier, how to just be better. Life is so much more complex than that. So much more difficult than that. Um, And so I, I think you really pushed and pulled really hard on that concept. Um, in a, in a wonderful way. And yet you did deliver to us healing. You did deliver to us some relational repair. Um, ultimately you gave us a weird, wonderful sense of family, the big, noisy, happy affair. Um, but it was through different channels. It wasn't through this quippy. I'm sure that was an intentional choice. Did you already, did you always have the ending in sight? Did you kind of know that you were you were going to leave us happy? You know, I wanted to leave it realistic. I wanted it to be hopeful between Gary and Judy, um, but I also wanted it to be sort of like, it's still a struggle. You know, we all struggle. Um, in our marriages, we struggle. Um, 
you know, Gary's going to struggle with Judy. She's difficult too, you know, and as yeah. you are in a marriage, there are times when it's very familial, you know, you just feel a bond to somebody. Um, certain yeah. parts might be gone or they might come back. We don't know. And, and so you don't know with them, but they're going to try or they're going to see where it goes. And so that is really, for me, that was really hopeful because um, I just didn't want to leave people feeling like really bleak, you know, um, but I also feel like I didn't want to make it too sugary because I think that at yeah. this age for me now, it's like, it can't be, you have to have yeah. that balance where it, it has to be real or that's what I want to read anyway. It was definitely not too sugary. Yeah. Um, I wasn't even sure, you know, halfway through, I thought, I don't know if, I don't know how this is going to end. I, I wasn't sure because they're, they're lost. Their sense of anxiety of loneliness was so deep and they kept getting it wrong. They just kept trying bumping up against each other, misunderstanding each other and not communicating. And, um, and I just thought, well, I, this might be the one where they just sail off into the sunset mm -hmm. in different directions and we don't get it. Um, but I was, I was delighted with the way that you chose to bring the family together like you did. Great stories are powerful, right? That's why I love this podcast. We get to hear people from all walks of life talking about their obstacles and their wins. And you know another place we get to do that? The Gin Hatmaker Book Club. And I want you to join today because if you love this podcast, you're going to love the book club. Here's the deal. Each month, we'll dive into a fantastic book. And we read all kinds of stuff, fiction, memoirs, self-help, all of it. Every single book is something I have read and loved. And I just know you will too. After you sign up every month, I'll send you a box with the book and other fun treats. Plus your membership comes with a whole slew of perks. You get resources like reading plans, weekly summaries, discussion questions. Plus you get tons of exclusive community stuff. You get access to our private Facebook group where you can connect with me and all your fellow members. And there's a monthly Facebook live chat session with me and sometimes some surprise guests. Sometimes I pop into the Zoom meetings of our local chapters, which is always delightful. Plus we do some cool stuff with the book's author. They curate these awesome Spotify playlists just for us. Plus I record a podcast with the author or another special guest and we talk about the book. It is an incredible way to cap it all off. And you know what makes a book club great? The people. This community is the kindest, most supportive group you can possibly imagine. So sign up today at jenhatmakerbookclub.com. We are here waiting to welcome you into the sisterhood with open arms. So join us at jenhatmakerbookclub.com today. Okay, back to our show. as we kind of start wrapping up here, I want to ask you about the title, which is clever, play on words, all of the things. Um, when I think, you know, when a lot of us think about separation anxiety, obviously the first idea is we're, we're apart from a person or a place, you know, that has brought us comfort or that's our sense of security or safety. Um, but what you should give us with Judy in addition to some of that was this sense of separation, even from what once was, who she was, what her life once was, um, what her marriage once was. I was um, 
curious what you were hoping that your readers would take away um, from the title at large by the time they got to the end of the book, because we have more than one way to consider that title um, by the time we've read through the whole storyline. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, the irony is that separation anxiety is really a term that refers to um, dogs who can't be left alone. But of course, Judy is the one who can't be left alone. I mean, the dog is probably yeah. fine. The dog is probably like, please yes. leave. You know, please leave. Yes. Um, but Judy's just so attached. But but I think you're absolutely right. I mean, that that is the point of the book. It is like a separation. I mean, obviously the double entendre, like you said, is also about the marriage. Right. Are they going to separate? Are they going to stay together? Um, but it really is that feeling of separation from yourself. And we all, I think, go through periods where we have to mourn the loss of our past life, you know, in terms of yeah. who we were before we got married or who we were before lots of things have happened to us. And yeah. um, the, the more you hang on to that and just refuse to let it go, you'll never be able to reinvent yourself and, and grow and change. And life is just a constant, you know, everyone thinks like, oh, you know, you have a great career. You just keep going like this and people don't understand like careers go like this. You can have everything yes, and then you go down and hopefully you come back up again in a different yes. incarnation or different, um, maybe not with the same splendor as the first time. I mean, the fact that I got another chance mm. after 14 years, like it's not the splendor of the first time, but it doesn't matter. I'm so yeah. grateful that I got this chance to do it again, but um, you have to let go. You know, you have to let go in order to let the new stuff um, happen. That's so great. How has it felt having this book out in the world? What's it been like? What's your experience been? What are your readers telling you? What's the feedback look like? You know, it was so great. I can't even tell you, like, it was just such a wonderful thing. And then of course the pandemic yeah. happened. And so things really yeah. shut down, but I was really lucky because I was able to go out on the, on the road on the East coast for about a week and a half before you know, there were other yeah. authors who didn't even get to go out. Um, their book got a week totally. after mine and, and everything yeah. was shut down. So you know, I saw a lot of old friends I hadn't seen. People have been so hmm. kind. Um, you know, yeah. you get your bad review every now and then, but it was just, I got a lot of really great articles and it was more than just getting the great articles. It was like people, you know, the people who love the book, love the book. And this is a thing about writing. Yeah. I think one of the lessons is just like, you're never going to reach everyone. Not, not right. every single person is going to love your stuff or love your story or That's relate. Right or it's not gonna resonate, but the people that loved it just made, it was so meaningful to me. And so, um, and I think a lot of people had a sense of this period of life, even before the pandemic. And then of course, yeah, all totally. of a sudden we were in the pandemic and um, yeah. and these issues were became more relevant, but I felt so lucky to have had this chance, um, you know, to have this book out and it was a great experience. No, you know, it was great, it was really I love to yeah. hear that. That thrills yeah. me. Um, I've got questions about what's next for you, but we're, I'm going to put a pin in it because I want to, first of all, I'm going to throw out a couple of questions to you that came from our yeah. book club. Um, we always field questions. There were tons. I picked just a couple for you. Um, but these are some member questions for you. Okay. So this is from one of our members. Her name is Casey Robinson. She said, your ability to portray mental illness and how it affects not only the person dealing with anxiety, but also others involved is spot on, in my opinion. Did you do a lot of research on mental illness and families? There's so much in this book that rings so true. And I'm, I'm curious about your research process. Well, actually, you know, my, my husband has bipolar uh, and, mm -hmm. um, you know, I've always had depression, not, not serious debilitating depression, but depression or whatever. 
Um, and so those mm. two things, I think, and I think yeah. so many people have experience either with a spouse or a kid mm. or themselves. Um, and so that was really my research. Plus I have a lot of friends and I know a lot of people um, who yeah. have similar issues, but that really gave me, uh, uh, you know, a very mm-hmm. close firsthand knowledge of, yeah. of the topic. And you try, I mean, mm. I'm, it's nice to hear that she felt that way. I feel like, yeah. you know, you never want to get something like that wrong. It's really important. Um, and, right. and yet everyone's experience is slightly different, but that's, you know, mm. especially if you have a spouse who's struggling and, and you struggle with certain issues, you know, it's, it's hard. It's hard to watch somebody struggle. Mm. Um, it's hard for yes, me to watch is. him during his difficult mm. times. And, um, mm-hmm. and, and it's, it's just a hard thing. And it's very hard too, because like I said before, you know, people, I don't generally talk about it because I always feel like it's his, you know, I want to keep it private for him. Not that I'm ashamed, but that it's sure. of his, I mean, of I, course it's fine, yeah. it's fine for him, for, for me to, to say it, but, yeah. um, you know, when you're with friends, you know, I always feel a sense of like, you know, it's, it's, it's private, you know, I don't want to talk about it, mm. but every now and then you, you have to talk about it because people, you know, people are like, well, why aren't you doing this? Or why, why, you know, and it's relevant. And, um, yeah. and sometimes, you know, it makes you understand other people, you know, you, I can always tell if something's absolutely. going on with other people. I just know they, you know, absolutely. Um, you and, there's, and then they, you feel a sense of like who you mm. can talk to and who you can't. And there's some people who just are not comfortable talking about mental health issues. They yeah. just, it makes them really anxious. They don't like it. They don't, yeah. and that's fine. And then there are people that mm. there's always people that you can really, they just don't judge. They don't have fear. Yeah. They can hear it. And then like, and it's such a relief. I have a few friends like that. And it's like such a gift, yeah. such a gift. And that's kind of what you yeah. did. You did by, by including that in your work from such a, a point of sincere understanding, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, that became a touch point for so many of your readers, because obviously, I mean, you and I both know that mental illness is not uncommon. Now it, it may, it may have a complicated way of finding its way into central conversation. You know, it, it causes anxiety in it's in people who, like you said, have a hard time discussing it, but um, it's not uncommon. And so I appreciate you accessing that hard, but real part of your own life to write about it. So saliently, uh, for those of us who absolutely have mental illness, either ourselves or in our families. Um, so yeah, that was a real relief. We don't always get um, that perspective in our yeah. books. Um, it's left out of there too. Yeah. So I really appreciated your inclusion. I want to ask you this question. This is from Liz Johnson, another one of our members. And I like her question. She said, I appreciated the deeper parts of the book. For instance, Virgilius. Am I saying that right? Virgilius. Yep. Virgilius. There it is. Virgilius from Costco. I loved this excerpt. All I knew was that his absence was proof that people stayed with you for the rest of your life, no matter when you stopped seeing them or when their body disappeared from your world. She asks, why did you choose such a minor character to leave such a big impact? It definitely made me think about people I run into or know for small amounts of time and how they may stick with me forever? That's such a great question. You know, he was real. Uh, Virgilius was real. And when my mother was sick, um, I would, I, it really is just like the book. I, my son and I, I would pick him up from school and he went to this private school. So we had to drive home and we would stop at Costco. And it, he, Virgilius was, you know, like six, five. He was probably 80 years old at the time. 
he was almost like, I almost would, we would look around almost like, is, is he real or is he an apparition? Right. Like it really felt like he was there wow. to teach us something. And we saw him wow. off and on for a long time. And he was just this magical person. He loved my son. And like, we would just by accident meet at Costco and he'd always be eating a hot dog. I mean, it was just, it was just a, a very strange sense of like, um, he's here hmm. to teach us something. He's here. And I feel like there are people that Aww. cross, um, you know, I'm not necessarily yeah. religious, but I do feel that sense of spiritual. I feel like things mean, yeah. there are meaningful people and meaningful things sure. that, that cross your path. And um, I really felt like he was one of them really at the time. Yeah. And I think if you leave yourself open to that, you know, like even talking to my life coach and just you leave yourself open and something will fill them. It, it comes. comes. Yeah. Yep. I love your capacity to hang on to the real people, the real things, the real memories in your life, just knowing this might be, this might, this might be a great yeah. character. This might be an important part of a story that I write. What a, you've, you've woven together. So meant so much of that inside this book. I actually love knowing that. Love it. Okay. So I want to ask like two last yeah. questions um, here. The first one is generally speaking, writers are also readers. We can almost always count on that. So we'd just love to hear, I don't know, what are you reading? What do you love right now? What, what books are you loving? What have you read recently? Or maybe like an old time favorite that you think if you have not read this, this is a book you absolutely have to put in rotation. Right now I'm reading um, Zibby Owens collection. You know, Zibby Owens, she does a podcast yes. out of New York. And so this is called Moms Don't Have Time. Um, she has a podcast called Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And she was sort of the patron saint of all of us writers back at the beginning of the pandemic because she started to do Instagram TV shows with us. And anyway, she put together an anthology of people, writers who wrote during the um, pandemic. And the other thing oh, I just wow. got, which I love, is this book called um, You're Leaving When? And it's by Annabelle Gurwich. And she's an actress. Um, she's writing about divorce, about raising her kid uh, as a single mom. Um, oh, it's memoir. Yeah, it's memoir. And uh -huh. funny and sad. And it's just brilliant. I really, really love this. I just started it, but sh she's one of my favorites. Oh, yeah. fantastic. I'm right. I, memoirs got to be in the tip top of my favorite yeah. genres. When it's well done, yeah. it's hard yeah. to be beat. Okay. Thank you for those awesome um, suggestions. Okay. This is the last thing. We're just, now that you're back in the yeah. saddle. I mean, you've, you've come back on the scene with a, with a, with a huge, huge gust of wind by, at your back. Um, and so what, what's next? What are you working on? Are you already onto something else? What's your next idea? What do you want to do? Well, what's down the pipe? Well, miraculously during quarantine, I was able to start a new novel and sell it at the end of the summer. So I have only, have like, oh, only wow. has like 70 pages. I'm supposed to be much farther along by now, but I'm not. Um, oh, we always are. It's all up here. Mm -hmm. um, yes. It's called Small World. And it's about two sisters yeah. who end up moving in together as grownups and sort of yeah. dealing with their past. Um, and it's funny. There's people upstairs, of course, deeply annoying people upstairs. And the main character is obsessed with an app called Small World, which is very much like Next Door, which is one of the- Yeah, yeah. oh yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Th th This version is called Small World. And she likes to take the posts that she reads and huh? turn them into poems. Um, she's obsessed <laughs> with all the stuff that's going on locally and it's all gonna somehow dovetail together. I have no idea how, but um, 
it'll be one of those weird, I'm sure very strange. That's great. I'm so delighted that you found like you tapped into some sort of creative well in the middle of the pandemic. That's, I mean, we did have time. We were at home and at home and at home. So of all the times to get like a great idea, this is probably not terrible. Um, That's great. You've already sold it. That's fantastic. So we'll probably see that what a year and a half from now. Yeah. 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 That's great. Well, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled that you're writing again. I'm thrilled that you're creativity is just like apparently spiking how wonderful I'll have what you're having. Um, and so we are, we were delighted, delighted to read separation anxiety in the book club and just, we enjoyed your character so much. We enjoyed the plot points. We related to so much of it. So many, many hard things that I appreciated that you kept in the story. Um, and it was just wonderful. So we're all new fans. We're here. We're like, keep going, keep going. Let's write about small world, bring it to us as quickly as you can. Um, let's get those, those drafts written. Um, so thank you. Thank you for your time today. I'm so happy to have met you and to get to talk to you. My, um, my community is going to be thrilled to meet you face to face. Like, Thank you so much, Jen. I'm a huge fan. It was really an honor to be chosen. Okay, well, we'll get your next book out. Let's do it again. Love that. (laughs) Thank you.